Hello, listeners, and welcome to the May edition of the Divorce and Beyond's Headlines Roundup. So this is a special episode of Headlines Roundup because I asked our friend and favorite high-profile, high-net-worth divorce attorney, Beth McCormick, to join me because there's some real real headlines cases going on. You can't, you know, not turn on your TV or open your Twitter feed these days without hearing about some of these cases. And in some ways they really uh, allude to, or some of these cases really play into some of Beth's um, areas of expertise. So I asked her to take time out of her incredibly busy schedule to spend a little time with me going into these headlines so you can get her perspective um, as an insider in that world. So Beth, first of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Susan. So for those who don't remember Beth, um, although I can't imagine you wouldn't, she is has been with us twice before. Um, the wildly popular episode, Lessons from a Billion Dollar Divorce Attorney, was her first episode with us. And then because Beth does so much work actually representing children and working on behalf of children, she came back and did a special two-episode um, arc on GAL, AMC, OMG, demystifying the role of guardian ad litem and attorney for the minor children. Um, And, you know, we got such a great uh, response to that, which doesn't surprise me because Beth is truly, um, you know, I've done this for a very long time. I know a lot of attorneys um, and Beth is truly one of the top practitioners as well as one of the nicest and best people that I know, which is a combination um, that if you're looking for a divorce attorney or someone to be guiding you or your children through the divorce process is an incredibly helpful and uh, almost unicorn um, uh, you know, person to find. I want to remind you just of some of her accomplishments and, and background so that you'll understand the information she's giving us in this episode. She's an equity partner at Beerman LLC. That's here in Chicago. Um, and honestly, is probably is the premier matrimonial practice in Chicago and other places. Um, and she really does specialize in highly complex family law matters, which is you know one of the areas we'll be diving into for headlines. But she also has a lot of experience in high net worth, celebrity, um, you know, complex litigation. And then on the flip side of that, she's she's really versed in mediation and collaborative law. They really inform her practice. As I mentioned, she represents children. And she, you know, for, for someone who has done so much in this world, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting about this episode is she really understands that sensitivity and the tension in a high net worth or a high profile or you know, cases where children are at the forefront. Um, so they all require different skill, set, skill sets, and Beth has them all. So she's very special. So again, Beth, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's a pleasure. I hope we can educate some of your listeners. Yeah, well, and I told you when I asked you to do this, because everybody, just so you know, Beth does not keep up on these headlines. <laughs> this is not... This is not of interest to her. She is not a People Magazine TMZ app um, holder on her phone type person. But I explained, you know, I'm not really wanting so much to talk about the facts, the prurient interest of these cases. 
um, that draws so many people to read about them. But I really want to pull out what is you know, common information and helpful to anyone who's going through divorce. Because in some ways, high profile, high net worth divorces are very different. But in some ways, they're going to be dealing with the same things you're dealing with. So we're really going to talk about these headline cases somewhat, you know, about the facts, but mostly about the commonality of what these people are experiencing that you're reading about and what you might be going through. So the first case I wanted to, to touch on, and, and it's probably not a long conversation, Beth, but I've talked about it on another episode, um, country singer Sam Hunt and his wife, uh, filed, she filed for divorce several months ago in Tennessee, citing allegations of infidelity, but the big bombshell in the pleadings was that she was pregnant, um, which apparently was not well known at the time. So this double bombshell of I'm pregnant and I'm divorcing you because you cheated on me caused a lot of headlines. And now apparently they've called it off. She's withdrawn the case. The baby's due at the end of the month. And uh, I think the article said they've been seen walking around the neighborhood with their dog. So clearly that's a reconciliation. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is the fact that she put the fact that she was pregnant in the original pleadings. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's important to be transparent. Um, when you file an original document like that, you're letting the court know kind of the lay of the land. And you're also letting the other side know that you're taking a position. Um, it's a crucial document that a lot of thought goes into. Ideally, your listeners will consult with their attorney and talk about the pros and cons of what to put in. I'm always struck by um, some matters where very intentionally things are left out. So a clear message was being conveyed when it was put in there. Right. You make such a good point because, frankly, if there's a child, even if that child has not yet been born, if the divorce had proceeded, one of the things they would have been now dealing with, uh, because I believe this is their first child, so if she had not been pregnant, this would never have been an issue, would have been custody and child support of that child, even though the child's not born, right? Right. And then um, it's imperative by in Illinois anyway, by the time that a divorce is final, you will have to state that you're not pregnant. Whenever I prepare people for a final divorce, it's always that awkward question that seems kind of silly, but it is a finding that has to be made. Um, I'm not sure of other states, Susan, that you practiced in, if that's what has to be said. No, gosh, you know, it's making me laugh here because it, you reminded me, it's been a while since I've had to prep someone for an uncontested hearing. But yes, in Connecticut as well, where I practiced for so long, we knew we do something at the time of the uncontested hearing that's called canvassing the parties, making sure they understand everything, think it's fair, blah, blah, blah. But one of the questions that always had to be asked of <laughs> any female party yeah. was whether or not they are currently pregnant. And if you didn't prep someone for it, it could lead to right? incredibly awkward times in court, right? Especially the 60-year-old woman. Yes, <laughs> yes, but you still had to ask, right? Yep. Yes. Yep. Uh, so, yep. you know, and, and good for them. I mean, this reconciliation, I, you know, I, I was looking at this and we see this 
the other thing that occurred to me about this is she filed these pleadings a couple of months ago and now they've withdrawn them. And I'm pretty sure in Tennessee where they filed it, I may be wrong, but every state has something called a cool off period. And um, I think in Tennessee it's six months. It is in Connecticut where I practiced. And this is a good case for that, why we have those cool off periods in each state as well, right? Because she, she couldn't go forward with the divorce and finalize it because they were still in that cool off period. That's right. Um, I don't know what other states are doing. Interestingly, in Illinois, we we had something similar and it just keeps becoming less and less of an issue. Courts um, in Illinois are not requiring much detail at all as to what separation is defined as. Um, separation being another word for the cooling off period. Yeah. We never required a physical separation, but you had to show that um, there was a period uh, separate and apart, which would be considered a cooling off period. So, yeah, but not, you know, they've really lessened those standards. So, um, but you're right. It's a perfect example of why the states, the intention behind the law was to, to let people just sit back and, and breathe for a little bit and make sure this is the right thing. Right. And that's, you know, in Connecticut, it was the same. You didn't have to show that people had actually been living separate and apart. In fact, many, many people are not, even as of the date the divorce is finalized. But you had to show um, and prove that six months had passed from the date of the original filing of the action yeah. to the date of finalization. So, right. yeah. Yeah, that's that that was the you know the positive so that people just didn't get upset one day. Not that I'm saying that that's what happened in yeah. in this case, but you know that someone doesn't get upset, get into an explosive fight, run off, get divorced and then realize that perhaps that was a little hasty. So, right? Yeah. And when you bring up a uh, explosive fight, I think the real um, point of the cooling off period in addition to a possible reconciliation is just the nature of the divorce after a cooling off period ideally is very different. Think of exactly why they call it cooling off. People are not in a place to negotiate when they're still in the thick of the conflict. So in the perfect world, not only are they just chilling out and and not discussing how to resolve all of these tough matters during the cooling off period. But I have a lot of people go through discernment counseling. I don't know how much you've talked about that on your podcast, Susan, but it is a beautiful layup to a divorce proceeding and people just get into a much different mindset and seem to problem solve much better. That, you know, so important you mentioned that. And it's interesting. I haven't done an entire episode on discernment counseling, but recently did an episode with our friend Heather Locus, and it was on divorce finance. But she talked about the same thing that discernment counseling is actually something that she suggests as a financial advisor in divorce matters yeah. to her yeah. clients. So, why don't you just give a little background on what discernment counseling is? Well, as a lawyer, I'm going to give you the lawyer Perfect. version. Perfect. I'm not a mental health professional as much as I wish that's what I would have done. Uh, <laughs> another degree in that certainly would help as a divorce lawyer. But I will tell you the um, those who've gone through discernment counseling come out with a very different mindset. So as I understand it, it was founded by 
a psychologist, Bill Doherty, and he uh, has a website, discernmentcounseling.com, where he explains exactly what it is. But it's very different from marriage counseling. Actually, marriage counseling is a possible outcome of discernment counseling. But if you don't go to marriage counseling, another option is to divorce. Another option, as I recall, is to just take divorce off the table, go back to life. And then another is, of course, marriage counseling with with some uh, guardrails. So the best part about discernment counseling for those couples who aren't ready for marriage counseling is to just get into the room and start talking and, and learning some of these tools. And then it actually often leads to marriage counseling. But as a divorce lawyer, they're coming to me post discernment counseling with a very different attitude with some of the tools needed to problem solve and actually get into the headspace of coming up with the answers that make sense for them as a family, all the way from where the kids are going to rest their head every night to how much is going to go into each of their bank accounts. You know, Heather Locust is an advisor I work with often. And again, she's so thoughtful and realizes the psychology behind those financial decisions. And if they're in the headspace that they can um, actually problem solve instead of just taking silly positions for the sake of silly positions, those positions is what makes lawyers rich, right? Because yes. they're, they're not based on anything other than emotion and I'm gonna get back at you, et cetera. So discernment counseling is usually um, a nice runway to, to just be of the mindset of what are our common goals? Right. And, and it's, I'm so glad we're actually, we're talking about this. I do have an episode coming up on discernment counseling, but I don't think we can say it enough because honestly, nobody really knows what it is. I, if you talk about it in a group of uh, people who are not in the family law profession, or dare I say, even when you do talk about it amongst right. a group of family law professionals, right? It's, it's actually something that's just not well known or is misunderstood. People think of it as some sort of reconciliation counseling. And as you pointed out, one of the end results might be that a couple decides to enter into couples therapy, into you know marriage counseling, whatever that might be. But there are also a myriad of other outcomes, one of which is just entering into the divorce process in a much better, much more prepared and supported fashion with your yeah. with your soon-to-be ex-spouse, but really can be incredibly helpful. So let's dive into our second case here. And it's it's I picked it this morning quickly. I saw the headline about it and wanted to talk about it just briefly because it's sort of the opposite of that Sam Hunt case where they reconciled with a child on the way. So I don't know, did you watch General Hospital way back when we were like in college? I was going to say it was the college thing to do, but we're dating ourselves. So we are very much. And since we happen to, I think, be the same age, um, if anybody wants to extrapolate back, but don't bother. Uh, we, I watched it was the thing to do three o'clock in the lounge yeah. at the sword house. Everybody was yeah. watching General Hospital. And and I think he was on back then, if I recall correctly, Steve Burton. Um, who was actually until recently, I think he was fired recently because of a vaccine issue um, around the COVID vaccine. He refused to, to get vaccinated and it violated pro protocols or something. But he, his wife 
is, and, and they've been married for quite some time. They have three older children. His wife is currently pregnant, and he has announced that they are divorcing and that that child, he says, is not his child. Um, and this is interesting, uh, mainly, I think, because of, you know, that, that presumption of paternity when uh, people are married. And I've run up against it in a variety of embarrassing ways for some clients during my cases. But uh, I'm curious, does Illinois have a presumption of paternity if somebody is uh, married when they become pregnant? We do, and it, boy, you're right. Awkward is is definitely Awkward. one word. Yes, and you can imagine a source of great conflict. It's so filled with pain, and you know, in the yes, so much to say. Yes. Well, so w why don't you explain what that presumption is, and you know how that would play out? I mean, he's kind of preemptively making a strike here in the divorce, um, yeah. at least in the court of public opinion. Uh, right, which topic for later, the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp yes. situation. That's clearly what that is. But having said that, I think um, I read it as a practitioner, though, you know, gosh, here's three kids um, that they've had together, as I understand it. And now mom's pregnant. And boy, what a tough one to explain. I don't know the kids ages or anything. But I think it, it could be a lob um, on the parenting issue to gain an advantage too, Susan. I don't know if, if you agree with that as a possibility, but um, I think he's he certainly could be successful in showing that there was a lack, lapse in judgment and that you know this will impact the children to have a sibling um, even when mom and dad are married. But, on the presumption of paternity, I would say, um, for obvious reasons, when people are married, the assumption is that they're having a child in common, and you know, very rarely are drug or I'm sorry, blood tests taken to prove paternity in a divorce situation. But you know, when there's a an affair that's been happening, and um, you know, I've had it go each way as mm -hmm. far as whether how the outcome resulted but uh you know i've seen many many cases where there's a presumption of paternity and remarkably the dad will raise the child and not ever want to know or so i've i've, I've literally had all of the above happen susan so I, I will just tell you, Illinois definitely does have the presumption, but some people choose to fight it and some don't. Well, that's a good point because it really does come up in so many different ways. And, and I've also had this. I, I think people would be surprised, actually, how often the question of paternity comes up in um, even long-standing marriages, um, but yeah, I mean it, it's 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 a question. But you're absolutely right, especially when it's a child who's already been born as a child who's been raised by two parents. Then a divorce happens, and there's an allegation that the child is not the child of. It, it's a paternity issue, really, because you can That's, always tell who the mother is in, in all cases, right? right. So that's remarkably common. Yeah. You know, I, I've had cases where they're adult children. Now go try to imagine that story. No. Right. That's terrible. It's horrific. 
when there's grandchildren involved and and then some truth comes out from years past i mean just unbelievable facts but the point being that in this situation um i think he was lobbying this for more than just um protecting himself on this child yeah i think there's court of public opinion there's i think their children are older i don't know that they're a man you know if they're uh I think they're all still minors, but you're right. Okay. This definitely may have something to do with a custodial issue. He may be very angry. That might have right. something to do with this. Um, but, and it could be that he's, you know, the, the issue is if he is the biological father of that child, he will pay child support. He will be responsible for supporting that child. And there will be custodial issues um, in, in an eventual divorce. Whereas if he is not that child's father, uh, then none of those are a part of their divorce action. There will still be issues around their three um, biological children, but there would be no issues around the child who is not yet born. I had a case once where the, the my client was remote. She was living a few states away. The parties had been separate, separated for years. And when we showed up for the final hearing, I had not seen her in months and months and months. And she got out of the cab from at the, or the, yeah, it was a cab because this is how long ago it was. But she was, you know, eight months pregnant and nobody knew. And including me, her attorney, which was a little embarrassing. And the judge in that case, although both she and the husband testified on the stand that it was not physiologically possible for him to be the Hus- uh, the father of that child, because they had not been together um, in more than two years, the judge would not hear the case that day and would not um, would not hear it until we could prove paternity after the child was born um, and prove that the father was not the child. Because in Connecticut, the presumption is if a child is born or conceived, will a party where a couple is married, that is the child of that marriage. So those people had to wait another two months um, so that the child could be tested, which then proved, of course, that it wasn't it wasn't his child. Oh, I don't know, Susan. And this is uh, just for the listeners. You and I could like I feel like that judge was overreaching. He has sworn testimony that to me feels punitive and a point was being made. So. Of course, my head immediately goes to reproductive rights, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, and just how arcane he was treating what this law is. If they both testified, that just feels punitive to me. But it, it did to me and to several of my <laughs> colleagues who were giving Ugh. me the the you know the pat on the back. Sorry about that one, Susan. Um, and you're right. right. It was one of our older judges who probably was uh, adjudicating from a prior time in history right. um and but but there's a good point in that for people to understand you, your judge is whoever your judge is oh and right you best, and i both in that have been in that situation the best uh advertisement for adr alternative <laughs> dispute resolution is keep control of your your outcome people <laughs> right yeah you yeah. never know yeah. i mean who who your judges and the bottom line is is I, you know, we, we obviously argued vehemently against this and, and uh, you know, his, his continuing the case. Um, but the judge is the judge in that courtroom. And when they make a final ruling, 
yeah, sure, you can appeal it, you can do whatever you want down the road, but in that courtroom, that person in the robe with the gavel is the final say. And you're going to do what their final say is for that day. So, well, now we can talk. Let's move on to the next case because, man, this one has kind of blown up in the last couple, uh, you know, week or so. Um, And I think it's an interesting one in so many ways because it's about uh, the custody of a child and emergency hearings and best interests. Um, So this is the custody battle that has recently uh, arisen between Aunt Anstead and Christina. I think she just got recently remarried again. So I think she's Christina Hall now. Um, Christina Hack was the headline. But uh, they have a little, he's not even, I think, two years old, little boy, and Hudson. And recently, Aunt served Christina with an emergency petition for sole custody. And, you know, so a few things out of this, because there's been a number of headlines. The first one is that that emergency petition was denied and set down for a later hearing uh, because the judge is saying he showed insufficient showing of evidence that it was an emergency in the petition. So I wanted to talk a bit about that because I've seen some comments from people after the articles, you know, when people can comment on these things, that that means that his case has no merit to it. Um, and and I don't think that that's what the judge was ruling on. I think it, it clearly says he was ruling on whether or not there were exigent circumstances. So I thought I'd get a little input from you on, you know, this what an emergency filing is, what the standard is, what what a judge is looking for there. Yeah, it's funny. One of our local judges basically says if I don't see anybody bleeding it's not me so obviously not not completely the way things work but judges tend to be pretty harsh on what really is an emergency is this child really seriously endangered you know maybe there's been a lapse in judgment etc but serious endangerment's a pretty high standard so um yes there is definitely no finding on the merits but again Uh, lay people just simply don't understand the difference. So no big deal that it's not an emergency. You know, a lot of times there'll be an expedited hearing. There's lots of ways to deal with it, but to deal with it with no notice or very short notice to the other side without an opportunity to properly respond is a pretty extreme remedy and and, uh, rarely granted is my experience. Mine as well. And and honestly, I, you know, as as an attorney, I would think long and hard about filing it as an emergency petition because the standard is so high. And then when, you know, as in this case, Aunt Anstead did file it, was denied um, for an insufficient showing. And as you just said, I believe it also said she wasn't given enough notice about the request. Um and, and it does set things up on sort of a, an initial failure setting. So, you know, unless not, the bleeding thing, I'm not, you know, it doesn't have to be bleeding. There are certainly cases where you can file for an emergency petition if one of the parents is threatening to remove the children from the jurisdiction imminently, um, where no one would be bleeding, but it might be an emergency situation. So, um, but it is important to understand this is now currently a still pending case it just got set down so that everybody further into the future, I think it's set down at the end of June, um, so that everybody can sort of 
pull their facts and cases together, right? Exactly. Just an opportunity to be heard completely. Uh, And I did not mean to minimize this judge's, what I feel like is a silly way to say all emergencies have to be that because the reality is domestic violence situations very often require an emergency hearing and or emergency relief because if the other person has noticed there's serious endangerment. So I I should not have been um, so smug on that. But on this particular issue, I, I definitely, you know, feel like judges making it clear that everyone will be okay if we have a hearing the end of June, yes, everybody bring your, your best case at that point. And it also, I think, sends a message to get into some mediation or something and figure this out. You don't want to give this up to a judge. They need to put their heads together. You can tell that they're embroiled in lots of conflicts. If they could just calm themselves and get into problem solving, they'll be in a lot better shape. Right. And, and, and their lives and their children's lives would not be in the headline. I mean, I have on my sheet here about five headlines on this case right right now with this family, um, which private mediation or a private trial. I mean, there's a lot of different private options. I know you participate in all of them since you represent so many high profile and, and high net worth clients. They usually will tend to want to stay out of this type of public setting. Well, if they get into the right lawyer's hand, I think that's the problem is all too often it's an opportunity for the lawyers to get a little press if it if it's juicy and meaty. Well, this is a perfect example of, you know, that judge, I think, sent a pretty clear message like, no, this isn't an emergency. Get back there. And again, I built my reputation on not being the lawyer who runs in and files emergencies. Screening is crucial. So judges, they talk to each other. And then you're before that judge many other times in the future. And I think um, clients finding the right lawyer who's scrupulous and, and not running into court just because it's another stream of revenue all the way to, you know, obviously it, it fuels a fire. Yeah. And if you're if you're that lawyer who's going to to do that one size fits all approach, your reputation's going to precede you. So, you know, clients seem to want to run to that mentality initially, and then inevitably they come after cooler heads prevail and they're not being successful. Right. And they're wishing that they hadn't gone down that that rabbit hole of right. the, the legal. And, and in fact, this just brings to mind for me, though, I wanted to mention something about uh, something that you do that I don't know. I actually I don't know of anyone who's else who's who's doing it. And it, it's a perfect example of, you know, sort of your very level headed, clear sighted approach to this. You you are an attorney in Illinois. And so I know that you represent and work with clients here. But in fact, you work across the country and across the world with clients who are facing some of these issues, who are in these high profile or high net worth cases, not necessarily as their attorney, but helping them plan out the best approach and find the right professionals to help that particular family through their their case. Because you have this truly you know, not unique, but just clear-sighted vision of how it can be and how it can work out for a family. I know people seek you out for that all the time. And it must be really satisfying to be able to, you know, share that 
outside of just, uh, not just, but being an advocate or being for the child or for the, the couple, one of the couple or, you know, working with them in mediation. Right. It's, uh, it, 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 it's definitely humbling because you are working with people who, um, could have anyone at their disposal and they're choosing to be much more scrupulous and thoughtful about the team of professionals in that jurisdiction. So when I talk about the reputation, well, you know, divorce is always uh, state determined. So all the judges know the lawyers and each of their reputations if they do family law. And so when I'm hired as a consultant, you know, perhaps in Florida, as an example, I, I actually meet sometimes with the couple and they come in at the very beginning saying, sadly, this is where we are, but we keep going to lawyers who are stirring the pot. We don't want the pot stirred. Can you help us find the right team? So then I will be, because I do know people all over the country and the world in family law, I'll be forming a team of thoughtful divorce attorneys, appraisers, uh, business valuation experts, forensic accountants, you know, what, whomever is needed for that couple. And again, that's one end of the spectrum, but the other end is when it is high conflict. Yep. Who yep. are the right people when it is, um, there's not a problem solving mindset at all yet. How can we get them in the right hands, the best and the brightest in that world as well? So yes, while I try to always have cooler heads prevail, I'm not always successful. So I need to find the litigation experts in that particular area. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, one of the benefits I think of your really, you know, broad and um, just, you know, your wealth of knowledge and experiences in this area is to be able to apply that well outside the bounds of Illinois and be able to help people, you know, as I mentioned, truly across the world, because that's, you know, so often when people are facing divorce and they know that they want this to be a, a, you know, a divorce that they can look back on and know that they approached it properly and they did it the best they could, they just don't know where to start. And they don't right. know that there's someone out there like you who can, you know, help from that very first moment. And it will make a difference because you and I both know, right, that I know I don't practice here in Illinois, but I know there are times when a set of pleadings, you know, initial complaint will come across your desk and you'll see the signature of an attorney down at the bottom and you'll go, uh-oh, this one's yep. going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, this situation that's happening um, that you just laid up, I feel like is kind of textbook. My guess is, you know, these people are fired up. And as a lawyer, I can I can fire them up. That's certainly one way to do it. Uh, but we all know the impact, the devastating impact that's going to have on those kids. When you see a scene at a soccer field and when oh. when people are, are at that low point in their lives, you know, I think as a practitioner, as a lawyer, you have a duty to help them look at it through another lens. And that doesn't mean that they have to get along. That just means that you have the basics. You control yourself at the kid's soccer game. Well, 
well, you don't understand. It's impossible. Well, you know what? No, it's not impossible. Yeah. No. <laughs> we're adults here. <laughs> we're the, we're the grownups in the room. And the, the, um, right. headline you're referencing is another one with Christina Hack Hall, Anstead, uh, El Musa. She's had a few different last names. It, it, and so whichever one I think is Christina Hall, she and her other former husband, Tarek El Musa and his current wife, Heather, I think, um, unfortunately got into a four-way adult uh, loud conversation in at one of their children's, uh, mutual children's uh, soccer games. And what I read in that article is unfortunately even the soccer coach had to come and part the two men, Tarek El Musa and Christina Hall's current husband, uh, because they were nose to nose and having a discussion and you're right, right? Unfortunately, this is, they were doing the right thing. They were all trying to go and support that child at a soccer game. And then the adults let it fall that, fall apart. And in, instead of being a positive for that child, that is now an extreme negative. Yeah, unfortunately. But who knows? Maybe the child was busy playing and, and didn't even know it happened. No, we um, can hope. <laughs> we can hope, right? Yeah. So I did want to ask a couple more questions on the um, on the case with Aunt and Christina because one of the things that he referenced um, is that she's putting their their son's health at risk because she returned him to the ba the child the less than two year old to his father with a sunburn and that's one of his grounds for the change of custody to be a sole custody. And I was a little surprised by that allegation um, in that that was the only allegation I saw, at least in what we've read, that was alleging that the child was somehow being physically harmed in the care of his mother. I've not actually, I'll be honest, I've not ever actually seen sunburn uh, used. Yeah, I, I have. And, you know, it's back to credibility and, you know, boy, what a risk that lawyer took to put that one out there. Because, you know, I think cases often kind of get labeled and that'll forever be the sunburn case. Yeah. You know, they, they think they're famous and, and that that's how they're going to be remembered. Unfortunately, all too often it's with things like this. So yeah. that alone being the allegation is really light, I believe, factually, to take that to a judge. Um, but having said that, you know, I have seen extreme situations where, you know, the sunburn on top of all kinds of other things did show that the child maybe was not being cared for properly. We are not saying that here. I, right. Please. Right. Well, no. Um, and, and we have to talk about things in these layers, right? Because right. again, the pleadings, as I've always said to my clients, you know, paper won't refuse ink. People can allege anything. It's whether they can prove it is really what's important. And That's not always do they put everything into the pleadings, although they're supposed to. Right, yeah. right. So, but another thing that I think would be will be interesting to parents out there, because this is something I know people are, are afraid about, and I think this case is going to, as this plays out, maybe foster that fear, is it sounds like extrapolating out what, what I've read in all these various articles is that there is a parenting plan in place that's roughly equal time, but for whatever reasons, and I don't know what those are, there, she hasn't 
filed a pleading yet, Christina Hall has not exercised all of her parenting time in accordance with the parenting plan. So there's usually that right of first refusal. And as she said in one statement, she's had travels and things that she was not able to exercise her parenting time in aunt exercised his right of first refusal. So they've had an upside down sort of, or maybe a dad heavy actual parenting time schedule for, for a few months. And so he's using that as well as one reason to switch to him having primary physical custody. Um, and I think that's going to scare a lot of parents that that might be a reason if they have something going on and they're not able to spend time with their child and the other parent exercises that right of first refusal. I can hear this be, be being brought up in future cases where we start talking about you know, that option of for right of first refusal. What do you think? Right. It's definitely an issue. You know, I have a personal concern with the right of first refusal. And then I've had judges voice a similar concern. You know, it often requires children. It puts children in the middle and they become the reporter of what what they were doing, you know, and it kind of gives parents a license to ask those questions. What'd you do? Where were you? Where was dad? Where was Ma? You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like um, the only real way you'll ever know if a child was give, was given to a caregiver instead of the right of first refusal is to to have the child report it right so right. to your point that's that's probably you know what she was thinking maybe I, again we don't know this Susan of course but she was thinking she was doing the right thing by giving him the option and here he is using it against her um when she's saying it's better to be with dad than grandma or neighbor or best friend, whatever. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think it could have a, a chilling effect for sure. I do. I do. And, and, you know, I, again, we don't know the facts of this case. I, I know we're saying that a lot people, but we want you to be aware of that. But, you know, it really gave me sort of a, a pause when I read that, that, you know, for whatever filming reasons and, and, one thing you and I both know with clients who, you know, are in this, you know, the word of film or television or whatever it might be, their schedules are peripatetic. They are not set in stone. They may be off for several months because they're not filming and their their responsibilities are, you know, personal appearance or things like that. But then they go off on on set to, to shoot. And if it's a film, they can be gone for months. If it's a television show, they can be working from you know, four o'clock call in the morning until midnight at times. So it's a part of being in that world that their schedules are not always set. And, you know, then for for this to be used as something against her parenting time, I, I was, um, I w- I'll be interested to see how that turns out if this ultimately does make it into a public forum. But... It's not, it may not, because they did announce um, that this case has been set down and ordered to go to mediation prior to the hearing date. Now, you and I both know it's not like it's unusual for a case to be sent to mediation before. I loved that that was the headline, like case must go, been ordered to mediation before hearing. That's actually the norm in most states that parents, when there's a custody or visitation or parenting or whatever you want to call it, 
um, issue, they have to go and meet with a mediator in some fashion before they can put that case on in front of a judge. Do they do that here in Illinois? Yes, there's mandatory mediation in parenting matters for obvious reasons. You'll have people who just show up to dial it in, but it is um, it is mandatory and it often does result you know, a vast majority of cases are completely settled. Yeah, well, I think the stats are actually um, cases where mediation is chosen voluntarily by both the parties are 85% or a little bit higher usually resolved. But even when it, people are ordered to mediation and go whether they wanted to or not, um, have more than a 60% success rate um, of reaching uh, you know, reaching some sort of agreement. So hopefully for this family, that mediation is going to help them move forward and move past this. Because I have to say, um, there's been a fast and furious bunch of headlines here. And, and we do have a little tiny, less than two-year-old child at the middle of all this. So although I'm sure there are a number of uh, adults in the world who really care about this little boy, uh, his his custody and, and parenting are being played out in the headlines, which is never the best situation for any child. So let's, That's I, right. yeah, I can't, we can't leave this without at least some mention of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I hate to even do it because it's been, I mean, I, I, it was on my Good Morning America this morning because they're going back and Amber's taking the trial taking the stand again this morning and i i really you know i'm not of a mind to talk about the allegations that have flown back and forth in this case i think it's clear that this was what we might term a toxic relationship it was not a healthy happy loving relationship for between two adult people but what it's coming down to, I did want to talk about, because this is something that is oh so common in family law, hearings, trials, anything that goes in front of a third party to make a decision. What this case is ultimately coming down to, I think, and you correct me if you think it's something else, but I think it's going to come down to the credibility decision between the he said, she said, who's more credible, Johnny Depp or Amber Heard, and it's a battle of the experts because their mental health experts are saying diametrically opposite things. And this is common, right, Beth, in, in family, you know, family law adjudications. It is. You know, interestingly, some courts have a neutral evaluator um, that's more typically in parenting situations in um, what they're doing these mental health experts positioning. It's not unlike a criminal trial though, right? Where mm -hmm. the forensics are what the forensics are and they're interpreted completely differently. And it's, you know, the, the old hired gun concept. So you're absolutely right. There is um, two lawyers watching this. It's a little bit of an eye roll. Um, <laughs> and it's clearly the court of public opinion, you know, I am not a TikToker either, but boy, there is no way you can miss these headlines, as you point out. Like, just and it's funny because in the court of public opinion, you'll I've dialed in to watch some of them, and then you get all the reels on the people who want to show all of her testimony and the lack of credibility through that lens. 
Yeah. Well, you could easily do the same the other way. I'm sure they are. It's just fascinating how the public um, wants to be the fact finders. And to your point, the ultimately the court is going to rely upon the experts. And when you have dueling experts, who knows what's going to sway the judge to lean one way over the other? And that's the point. That's what people need to understand, right? Because it doesn't, in this particular case, and I, I will mention in a minute, you know, the court of public opinion does matter to some people like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. There's a very good reason why this case is playing out so publicly. They want it to be heard, or at least one of them wanted it to be heard in the court of public opinion. But in your, you know, non Johnny Depp Amber Heard case, whether you're two parents fighting or two adults fighting over money or whatever the issue might be, when you're, you just said it, when you're bringing in two experts who are saying different things about essentially the same facts, it's going to come down to this independent third party, the person in the robe, who's going to make the decision as to who's more credible, who they're going to rely on more. And that's not just with the experts. It's with your testimony too. This judge is going to ultimately have to make a decision as to who is being more truthful than the other here, Johnny Depp or Amber Heard. Um, and, and I should say, Amber Heard is, she, she, he sued, Johnny Depp sued her in Britain and the British court, um, he lost that suit. They found that she was credible. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens here. This has played out certainly on a much longer, much more, uh, you know, I don't even know what to call it. This has just been an ongoing um, yeah, circus. Um, but you, you know, because you go in there into a courtroom with people, not every day, but when you do have to do that, you never know what that person in the robe is going to decide is ultimately credible or uh, who's telling the truth or who has cleaner hands than the other. Right. So while I personally do um, alternative dispute resolution, I oversee thousands of litigation cases every year. And I'm blown away at those people who do give up control to a judge and as we walk to court across the street, I'm, I'm giving them pep talks on the, the myriad of outcomes. And inevitably, when you think you can call it, you, you, you just simply can't. It's very dangerous yeah. in family life. It's, it's, it's actually, they've shown some of those TikToks and memes you've been talking about are when one side or the other is or at least people see it as they do something that's a celebration of a point being made or, you know, and, and I'm like, people, you have really, truly no idea what's actually going on. Like people are looking at Johnny Depp's doodles and trying to extrapolate information from them and micromanaging Amber's, you know, facial expressions um, you know, to, to extrapolate what they, they mean and what she's thinking. I saw one that says body language expert says blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, all of that may play into it, but it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what all the TikTokers in the world think. In the case, it will matter what the judge thinks at the end of the day. But you and I also know that in some of these high profile less so in high net worth, but sometimes, but high profile, often it is not the point of the case. It is the public perception that is the real win. 
for someone. What do you think? Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. I feel like um, I heard someone say Johnny Depp has already won. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was you. And um, because he accomplished his goal, and that is to just earn back credibility with some segment of the population, right? Um, It sounded like, and again, because I'm not a pop culture person, it sounded like he had lost a lot of steam, wasn't getting a lot of work. So, you know, maybe it made perfect sense to do what he did. You know, she filed a countersuit and and they're off to the races. But even if she had not filed a countersuit, all of this testimony would be going in, right? Again, to the lawyers, it's a bit of an eye roll, but I, it's kind of, it's not unlike the other sensationalized trials we've all heard about. You know, it's, uh, it's good to get the public kind of seeing just how much of a circus it can be. And for all I know, this judge is, is doing a fine job. It's just, that's how cases like this have to go. I mean, the, the stories that are coming out are just unbelievable. Well, guess what? That's what we see every day, isn't it, Susan? You know, just another day in paradise. Oh, I was at a, um, a party yesterday and, you know, you know what it's like when people find out what you do is, is divorce work. And so everybody in the world either wants your opinion on what's going on in the headlines or they want to tell you about their divorce or somebody else in their family who's getting divorced usually. Um, but all, all I was asked about yesterday was this trial. Yeah, It was everybody wanted to know. And, and I said the same thing. I said, this is playing out and we're getting a really deep dive into it. But this is so normal for a, a, that kind of a court case. There's, you know, we've heard, God, I've heard, these are bad allegations, but we've heard worse. Right. Yeah, it's horrifying. Well, we could talk about Johnny Depp and Amber forever because this feels like the case that will never end. Um, but maybe maybe you'll come back when we get a, a ruling and we'll talk about it a bit more. But I wanted to thank you so much for taking so much time out of your very busy day to talk about all of this. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so, Beth? So I practice in Chicago at Beerman LLP, and um, you could email me at bmccormack, B-M-C-C-O-R-M-A-C-K, at BeermanLaw, B-E-E-R-M-A-N-N-L-A-W.com. I'm guessing you'll put that in your notes. And absolutely. I actually do give out my cell phone to people. So if you email me, I will do that. Um, and I have found that I did this even pre-COVID. I've, I think a lot of my peers are giving out their cell phone now too. Tough time in people's lives and accessibility is crucial, I think. It is. Well, and I think that just says everything you ever needed to know about Beth as an attorney and as or as a consultant. You have you have her cell phone number if she's working with you. So um, I I feel lucky because I have it, too. And I'll, I'll send you a text saying thank you so much for doing this. But I do really appreciate it, Beth. It brings so much more to it to have someone 
with your background and understanding of these cases um, to be able to talk about it and really peel away the sensationalism and get down to what's really happening or what we can take away and use in our cases and in your case to, to my listeners. So I will put everything in the show notes. Go listen to Beth's other two episodes. I'll also have links to those in the show notes. And thank you so much, Beth. Thank you, Susan.